Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few minutes of silent prayer and then uh, make sure we're in fellowship. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have your complete, sufficient revelation to us in, in your word. We thank you that you have given us everything that we need for our spiritual life. We pray that as we study through these chapters that we will uh, see that they have great application to our own spiritual lives as well as tremendous implications in terms of how history goes and the rise and fall of nations. And Father, as we study tonight, we pray that we'd be able to concentrate, focus, keep us alert, that uh, as we study under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit will be able to understand these things, and they will strengthen and encourage us in our spiritual walk. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 12. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 12. In the 8th chapter, the focus is on the... Built the completion of the building of the temple, the uh, dedication of the temple, and uh, Solomon's prayer. In the first part of the chapter, first 13 verses, we see the tabernacle brought from the city of David to the temple itself, brought in by the by the priest. This is a Ceremony that had a tremendous amount of pomp and circumstance. And the reason that we have all of this uh, formality, this pomp and circumstance, the reason they, they have the orchestra, the choir, the reason they have the priests and the large number of sacrifices is to honor God. This is part of worship because God is who He is. He is worthy of all of, all of this. There is a time and a place for a certain measure of formality and even what people today might consider excess in terms of worshiping God because God is who He is. And we see this at particular times uh, in the Old Testament when the tabernacle was first uh, established and consecrated, when the temple is first consecrated here and at a few other times in the Old Testament. Once the... Uh, Ark of the Covenant is taken into the Holy of Holies, then uh, the Lord descended in a dark cloud, indicating that His presence was going to dwell above the cherubim on the mercy seat. And as a result of His glory filling the tabernacle, the priests could no longer minister, according to verse 11. 
Following that, Solomon then makes a statement in verses 12 and 13 about the Lord's dwelling in the tabernacle. And then in verses 14 through 21, we saw last time that he opens with a statement of of blessing in relationship to the Lord and a reminder of what God has done uh, in the past toward Israel. This is a key focal point throughout the opening, his opening uh, blessing statement and verses 14 through 21, as well as in the prayer. There is this consistent element in the prayer reminding God of what he has done in the past to Israel. This shows us that for believers, history is important. History isn't just, as Henry Ford once said, one damn thing after another. History is something that has progress. It has meaning. It has significance because God is the one who oversees history and he is working in and through history to bring about uh, certain things and to teach certain lessons within the framework of the angelic conflict. And so there is something significant to history, and we should learn history so that we can remember the great deeds of God. And it's not just simply for the fact that we remember them, but because in God's eyes, remembrance is uh, of these events is important because God doesn't do repeats. As I used to say when I was a school teacher, you get it, I tell you once, and I don't do repeats. Once God does something in history, he doesn't have to repeat it in every generation. So when he performs certain miracles, the fact that there were eyewitnesses who recorded those miracles means that they are just as real and just as much of a testimony for us as they were to the people at that time. When you live in a generation that has rejected history and wants out of its own arrogance to see these things repeated in every generation and wants them repeated in their generation, then what you learn is that they have no respect for eyewitness testimony. And this is exactly what uh, Jesus emphasizes in the story of Lazarus and the rich man in the Gospel of Luke. This isn't a parable, as Arnold pointed out last week. It's the story about Lazarus, who was a beggar, who was outside of the home of the rich man. The rich man dies and goes to torments. Lazarus died, and he goes to Abraham's bosom. And when the uh, rich man in torments looks across the great gulf, he sees uh, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, and he pleads with uh, Abraham to let him go back to tell his brothers that uh, of the consequences of their unbelief. And Abraham says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe somebody who's been raised from the dead. Looks like we have some sound effects tonight. And that's the principle in the, in the scripture in history is once God does these things, there is real for us as they were for the generation that it, uh, where it actually occurred, because by faith we understand that their eyewitnesses' account is just as good as if we saw it, because we walk by faith and not by sight. So there is this significant element of history and a reminder to God of what he has done in the past, and the reason he's reminded of these things, as we'll see and the opening part of Solomon's uh, dedication prayer is because that is part of the rationale 
that Solomon is using to convince God to answer his prayer. And doctrine is embedded in history. The doctrines that we learn in the Scripture, the key doctrines of Scripture, are all revealed in historical events. They don't. God didn't give us an abstract theological textbook, as I pointed out in the History of Doctrine class last night. God gave us a, a revelation that it, that operates in and through historical events. So you can't cannot separate the truths of the Bible, the doctrines of Christianity from the, their impact or their original occurrence in history. So when people come along and say, well, the Bible's not really a hist- uh, historical textbook, and you can't really, we, it really didn't happen that way, but we need to apply the principle, they have just destroyed the whole impact because the Bible is saying if it didn't happen the way the Bible says it happened, then the doctrine that's tied to that historical event isn't true. And you can't separate the truths the truths of Bible doctrine. Did that light flicker again, or is that just my computer? No, the light flickered. We're continuing to have flicker issues up here. Okay. But <clears throat> these truths are embedded in, in these historical events, and so we see how, the, how Solomon is going to use these historical events in his uh, prayer to God and in his blessing of the, of the people. So that's what we studied last time in verses 14 down through 21, Solomon's opening address and blessing of the people. And the idea there when Solomon blesses the people is a greeting to them. That word blessing has various nuances, one of which is to, when Solomon blesses the people that has the idea of a greeting and then the content of that greeting is given, was given in, in verses uh, 16 through 21, which is a rehearsal of God's faithfulness to the people and delivering them at the Exodus event, which connects it to the Mosaic Covenant, and immediately in 16b down through uh, verse 20, the focus there is on the Davidic Covenant, and then in the last verse, in verse 21, uh, B, he goes, or verse 21, he goes back to the Mosaic Covenant. So what this whole prayer that's coming up, beginning in verse 22, is anchored in the Mosaic Covenant and in the Davidic Covenant. And what we learn from this is that Solomon's thinking is so saturated with the teaching of Scripture and with Scripture and the events of Scripture and the reality of these events that this is what gives strength and what gives such resonance to his prayer. And what makes it so significant is it, it, it flows right out of the fact that his thinking is so focused on Scripture and what God has done in the historical past. So in the, dedic- dedic- the prayer of dedication, we're going to see lessons related to two key doctrines that, that often work together. One is prayer and the other is the faith rest drill. And often we use prayer as the vehicle for the faith rest drill. We are praying a promise to God, or we are praying to God, and and, and as a lawyer argues or presents a case, we present a case to God that he should fulfill uh, uh, his promises a certain way 
uh, because of who he is and what he has said in the past. So, four things I said last time on promises that we need to remember. First of all, promises, divine promises, are not made to be broken. Often in the human realm today, we live in a world where promises have very little value and people often make them and they're simply made to be broken. And people often understand that and so promises have little value. But divine promises are not made to be broken. They are made to be kept and God always keeps his word. Second point is that a promise is a guarantee based on a person's character. A promise is only as good, the guarantee is only as good as the person who's the character of the person who's making the promise. So if the person who's making the promise has no integrity, the promise has no value. But if the person has perfect integrity as God does, then the promise is unbreakable. Third thing I noted is that we have to pay attention to whom the promises are made. We can't just go willy-nilly into the Old Testament and read a promise that appears good and gives us comfort and sounds good and just rip it out of context because often these promises are addressed either to individuals or they're addressed to specific groups or they are (coughs) addressed to, for example, we have all of mankind addressed in the Noahic Covenant You have specific promises related to Abraham within the Abrahamic covenant, promises God made specifically to Abraham, that Abraham would be given the land. Not just his descendants, but Abraham personally, which never occurred during his lifetime. You also have specific groups that are addressed, Gentiles. You have other nations, promises of judgment made to the Assyrians, made to the Babylonians, made to the Egyptians, made to the Moabites, made to the Edomites. These are promises made to uh, specific groups. And we also have promises that are directed to individuals. And this is always a difficult problem in the Gospels, I think, because there are statements Jesus made to the disciples that were only for the disciples. And then there are statements that are made to the disciples as representatives of the church. And so one of the challenges in hermeneutics is to try to decide if this is a promise that is to every, every person in the body of Christ and the, and the apostles or disciples simply represent the church or these are uh, just for the disciples during the transition period of the apostolic age. So we have to ask questions. Who's making the promise? To whom is the promise made? Are there any conditions in the promise? And then fourth, the phrase claiming a promise means that we are reminding God of what he has promised, of any conditions attached to the promise, and we are providing a rationale to him for fulfilling that promise in our life. So that the ultimate goal is saying, God, you have said, and now I'm in this situation And so I'm asking you to fulfill that promise in my life in relation to to this situation. Solomon's prayer, the entire prayer of dedication, is uh, Solomon claiming a a number of promises within both the Davidic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and calling upon God to fulfill uh, those promises. Now, the first part of this prayer is given in verses 22 down through verse 30. That's the first paragraph of the prayer. 
And the focus of this part of the prayer is on God's covenant faithfulness toward Israel and a, an entreaty or a prayer to God to be gracious to Israel and to forgive them of their sins. That is the focal point, and you don't get to that main request until you get down to uh, verse 30 where we read, May you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. That's the main request in these verses, verses 22 to 30. Everything from 22 down to 30 is a setup for making that request. And that request is going to be then based on promises God made in the Mosaic Covenant, specifically in the blessing and cursing passages of Leviticus 26 and 27, Deuteronomy 30. So we'll get into that more next time. But right now we need to focus on the foundation, how how Solomon structures his prayer. Because this is important for us to understand that, that while a lot of times when we pray, we pray uh, have prayers that are spontaneous. We have prayers that are uh, rather impromptu, but what we see here is a thought-out prayer, a well-structured prayer, and a prayer that shows that Solomon has put a lot of thought into how he is going to express it. And there are many times in our lives we ought to slow down, reflect a lot upon Scripture, and use the Scripture in the ways that Solomon uses Scripture in these prayers. Now, when I say this, and when I talk about this, I don't want you to lose, I'm going to talk a lot about how Solomon has structured the prayer and how he pulls together a lot of uh, ideas out of key Mosaic Covenant and Davidic Covenant passages. And so what I'm going to do is break it down and show the, as it were, the underlying skeleton of the prayer. But don't lose sight of the fact that this is an impassioned plea from Solomon that he is not just going through an academic exercise, that he's followed a, you know, some sort of boilerplate uh, paradigm for his uh, structuring his prayer, but that he's doing this because he is impassioned in his request that God do something. And so he is presenting a case for why God should do that. And he's basing that case on what God has said, what God has revealed in the past. So let's begin at verse verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread his hands towards heaven. Now we see a posture here that is not normal for our culture or our ecclesiastical background, and that is that he is standing with his arms outspread, uh, looking toward heaven. We see similar postures in Isaiah 115 and also in Ezra 9.5. That's Isaiah 115 and Ezra 9.5. Now, when we compare this passage, verses 22 to 30, with the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 6, 11 to 21, we see that there's one difference between the two accounts. These are parallel accounts. And the addition comes in Second Chronicles 6, uh, 13. 
And there we're told that Solomon had made a bronze platform that he had set there in the midst of the people uh, and before the, uh, uh, before the ark, or before the altar rather, there was five cubits square, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. So it's about seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet and about uh, four and a half feet high, which is high enough to elevate him so that the people can see him. And then the other addition is that Chronicles tells us that he not only stood, but then he knelt. Now, there's not a conflict between the two passages, as I pointed out last time. It is simply that the writer of uh, the king's account is emphasizing aspects of this, and he's, uh, he's not even focused on all, all of this aspect as the writer of Chronicles is. So the writer of Chronicles just gives us a, a little extra, uh, extra detail. So he kneels in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spreads out his hands toward heaven. Now, he begins his prayer with a focus on God. The first part of the prayer is covered in verses 23 and 24. And if you look at the uh, verse in your your Bible, he addresses, first of all, God, God the Father. Here he's addressing the Lord God of Israel. Prayer is, for the believer in the church age especially, is always to be directed to God the Father, because both the Son and the Holy Spirit are intercessors for us. And you do not address your prayer to one who is interceding for you. You address your prayer to the one to whom all intercession goes, and that is uh, to the Father. And so in verse 23, Solomon says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above, on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants. Notice that this is a rehearsal of past actions, that God has been faithful in keeping his covenant and showing mercy to Israel. There is no God like you who keep your covenant mercy with your servants, who walk, walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant, David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So he begins with a focus on God, a focus on God's character, a focus on his historical work and his historical faithfulness to Israel and to David. Now the key verse in this for this whole prayer is the first verse, verse 23. Verse 23 we read, and he said, "Lord God of Israel, there's no God in heaven above, on earth below like you. This is the first thing we need to analyze is this phrase because it emphasizes the uniqueness and the incomparability of God. There is no God like you. Now that's an important phrase and we need to see how it is used in other places in the scripture. He doesn't just say that out of a vacuum. That isn't just because suddenly he thought, well, this is a good thing to say that God is as a unique God, there's no one else like him. Uh, that sounds good, so we'll put that in the prayer. There's a reason for that that comes out of Scripture. The second thing that he says in this opening is uh, he emphasizes that God is a covenant-keeping God. So right away he is talking about an aspect of God's sovereignty, his uniqueness, So what we're going to do is we're going to go through here and see a lot of attributes of God 
other than the ten we normally talk about, but we're going to see how they're all part of these these other ten. God is if God is sovereign and He rules the universe, then that implies He's unique and one of a kind. There is no other ruler of the universe. There is no other sovereign. There's only one. So there can only be one. So that emphasizes uh, his, also his uniqueness. So the sovereignty involves his being the creator. It also involves his being unique and incomparable. He is also a covenant-keeping God, and that will bring into focus at least two key attributes. One is his love, and the other is his faithfulness. And we'll see that those are connected in one Hebrew word that is very important in the Old Testament, and that's the Hebrew word chesed, which has to do with God's faithful, loyal love. Or sometimes it's translated, it's translated often as loving kindness, but it's more than loving kindness. And so, uh, I think King James translated it mercy. It's more than mercy. It brings to the foreground, he is faithful in his love. And his love is defined and structured by these covenants. So it has to do with his covenant loyalty, that he is going to fulfill his love obligations to the, within the covenant, even if those to whom the covenant is made violate it. So these are the two ideas, and key words that we're going to see here are keep, which has the idea of guarding or protecting or maintaining something, and the word loving kindness, which I just mentioned that brings into focus uh, faithfulness, love, mercy. All of these are embedded in in that Old Testament word. Now the first phrase we need to look at and to examine is this phrase that there is no God like you. There's no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. Where do we find that phrase? Well, the first place that we find that phrase in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. And this phrase emphasizes the uniqueness and the incomparability of God. He is He is one of a kind. There's another word that also brings out an aspect of that, but he is comparing him to anything else that we know, anyone else that we know, any other God that is developed in any of the other pantheons, that there's no one that can be compared to God. God is unique. God is one of a kind. Now, if you look at the context of Exodus chapter 15, it is a song. It is a song of joy and celebration that Moses wrote after the Israelites were delivered from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And this is his song of victory. And it begins in verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God And I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So it is a hymn of praise. So immediately, uh, the word we should associate with this hymn is the word worship. And that's a word we're going to also see. It gets brought into 
what Solomon is doing with his prayer is this element of of worship, which ties it to what we've been studying on Sunday morning. Worship is when we are ascribing worth and value to God because of who he is and what he has done. Worship is always theocentric. It is not about me. It is about God. And that is what we see in these verses. Even though there's the reference to the first person pronoun, it is all about God and what God has done in delivering the Israelites. So then we come down to verse 11, which is where Moses is contrasting God and comparing him to all of the other gods. There's none like Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who has entered covenant with Israel. There's none like him among the gods. Who is like you? And then he uses these words, uh, glorious in holiness. I think that's the, that's the New King James uh, translation there that he is glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Well, we have to take a look at some of these words because it's not as clear uh, in the English what that means as it is in the Hebrew. The first phrase, glorious in holiness, the word glorious is the Hebrew word adar, which means to magnify, to glorify, And here it's used in the uh, passive sense to be magnified. God is to be magnified. In other words, we are going to uh, rehearse what he has done. We are going to, as it were, brag about what God has done in delivering us. And he is, uh, it has this idea of expansiveness. It is a synonym for the Hebrew word kavad, which is the word for glory. Kavad has as its core meaning the concept of heavy or something that is weighty. But Adar pictures the uh, character of God in terms of its size. So this brings in a little bit of a, of a different notion. And there are theologians often speak of the immensity of God, not just his omnipresence, but his immensity. See, he is infinite. So it has to do, this Adar is more of a a spatial type of concept as opposed to a weighty sort of concept, which is what you would get from the word kavad, which is the word that we normally translate glory. So it should be that God is majestic. He is is, uh, immense, overpowering in his holiness. Now that word holiness is the... Hebrew word kadash, which has to do with being totally distinct, totally set apart. And I think that has as its core meaning this idea of uniqueness, that in his, the fact that he is one of a kind, and he's one of a kind on the basis of a number of factors, but the holiness, we often think of holiness as that which is pure or morally right, and that idea comes in as a secondary concept to the core uh, semantic value of this word. The core meaning in, in Kadash is that which is set apart. Now, often people have heard uh, holy described as righteous and just so much, and that's part of it. That's sort of a secondary idea, but we forget how this word group is used. The uh, feminine uh, noun is used to describe the, and the masculine noun used to describe uh, male and female prostitutes that operated in the uh, temples of Baal and the Asherah.
See, that's not morally pure, but it is set apart to the service of their God. And that's where you get that, that core idea. Uh, secondary ideas can be attached to a word, the idea of moral purity when it applies to God, righteousness. These become clear from Isaiah 6 and some other passages. But the core idea is the uniqueness of God. He is one of a kind. There is no God like him. So he is uh, majestic. He is overpowering in his uniqueness. It is expansive. This next phrase is one that uh, if you spent some time thinking about it, you'd start scratching your head. It's fearful in praises. And I went back and checked about ten different English translations, and they almost all translate this phrase, fearful in praises. And I looked at the Hebrew, and I said, I don't understand how they're getting this concept, fearful in praises. It really doesn't mean anything to me, does that mean that we're to be afraid of God or that when we praise Him, we're afraid? What's the concept here? And the word that is translated fearful is the uh, normal Hebrew word for fear, which is yareh. But yareh has, a, has a, a wide range of meaning. It can talk about somebody who's, uh, who's uh, in a state of terror or fear because they're, they're scared from some circumstance or some situation, or it can also refer to awe, someone who is just overwhelmed in awe of someone or something or some situation. The word can also refer at times to worship. It is a synonym for worship, that just as uh, Solomon begins the Proverbs with, that the beginning of wis- the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This fear of the Lord isn't isn't the kind of fear that that strikes terror in your soul, but it's the kind of a fear that 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 strikes uh, sobriety, you might say, uh, in the sense that it's used in the New Testament. Not that you're not using alcoholic beverages, but suddenly you become very serious and reverent and uh, sober-minded about a particular situation. And that word reverent is also used in the lexicons to, as a, as a word for Yahweh. It has to do with reverence. It has to do with worship. It has to do with the seriousness that we feel when we come into the presence of God. Uh, I like to use the illustration that when I was a, a kid, if I disobeyed my parents, sometimes my mother would say, well, just wait till your father gets home. And there's that recognition that there are consequences to pay for bad decisions. And there's that element of fear there that takes respect to sort of a higher level. And you all know what I mean or should. So that's the idea of fearful in praises. And I think the best way to understand this is honored in praises. It's a word that is used in this context parallel to worship, reverence, Awe that it is in praise that we express this reverential awe or worship or honor, respect for God. It is not that there is fear expressed in the praises, but that there is this this uh, honor and reverential awe expressed in praises towards God. And he is the one who does wonders. Both of these are... Um, uh, nephal participles, which means they are, uh, I mean, uh, are participles indicating ongoing action. 
the doing wonders he performs miracles as he did in <clears throat> at the at the Red Sea. Now, if we look at this context of Exodus fifteen eleven, where Moses is expressing this is the first time you have this phrase that, uh, comp- uh, comparing God to anything. There's some other things that go along with this. If we just skip down to verse thirteen, we have a, another important word attached to the uniqueness of God in this context. And verse 13, Moses says, You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. So that is talking about taking them to Mount Sinai where God will give the law to them. The people are redeemed. Redemption is their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And so God is said to be merciful here, but mercy doesn't quite capture the Hebrew. This is the word I mentioned earlier, this Hebrew word chesed, which has to do with loyalty, unconditional loyalty, faithfulness, uh, graciousness, steadfast love. Sometimes it's uh, translated, as I said, loving kindness in the New American Standard, but it's more of a faithful, uh, loyal Love God is loyal, and he has structured that and built that into his covenant. Psalm 136, the word is used 26 times. Psalm 136 is a psalm that it focuses on the faithful uh, love of God. So in a context that is related to the <clears throat> deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt, just as they are on their way to Mount Sinai to receive the Mosaic Law, we have this first reference to the uniqueness, the incomparability of God. Now, the next couple of times that we that we run across this this phrase is going, we'll find that it's in the context of the Davidic covenant. So Moses uses the phrase, and the next person to use the phrase is going to be David after God has given him the Davidic covenant. So we'll jump ahead a couple of books to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. Now up through verse 16, we have the Davidic covenant where God promises David an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. And then we see David's response in verse 18, which is usually not a passage that we discuss when we go into the Davidic covenant. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Now Solomon, remember, stood with his arms outstretched. He knelt with his arms outstretched. But David goes in, and I think David was so overwhelmed, he just sat. And David sat before the Lord, and he, I, I, from what he says, I think he's stunned by the promise of God in the Abrahamic covenant. And he says uh, in verse, 20, verse 18, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? He's overwhelmed by the grace of God. He just can't understand why God has been so good to him in giving him the, freely giving him these blessings. And he says, watch his reasoning here. He says, and yet, this was a small thing in your sight. 
It's overwhelming to David, but when he thinks about this promise over against God's omnipotence and God's sovereignty, he realizes this is just a, just a, a small thing that God could do. He says, this is a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. You've also spoken to your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, conclusion, here's our verse. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. So here we see that God's greatness is, I mean, his, his uniqueness is connected to his greatness. In the Exodus passage, we saw that his, his uniqueness was connected also to a similar word to greatness to his, that we worked on in terms of his, his holiness, his uniqueness, and his uh, his immensity there. So here we have another similar concept. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Now the word translated great that's connected to the comparison is the Hebrew word gadol, which means to become great, to make great, to magnify to grow up, to grow, to promote. You could almost use the word, I'd hate to use this in our culture, but celebrity. God is, is greater than anything. He is the most celebrated. He is to be the most celebrated person in all of the world. And the second thing that David says is that there is, nor is there any God beside you, and this is the Hebrew word zol, which are Zul, which means accept you. There is no God except you. You are God alone. There is no other God. So again, we're, we, we're, we're seeing this emphasis on his uniqueness and on his uh, incomparability. So we see the, these divine attribute, uh, attributes emphasize that God is, is great and that he is he is unique. Then we come to a, our third passage where we have the phrase, O Lord God, there is none like you. This is in 1 Chronicles 17.20. This is the parallel passage to the 2 Samuel 7.22 passage because this is the Chronicles version of the Davidic covenant and the uh, record in 1 Chronicles of David's response. And he says, Oh God, there's none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. So I want you to notice, when Solomon sits or kneels to pray to God, and he says, There is no God like you, and we look at the content of this prayer that is the outgrowth of his meditation and thought on the Davidic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, when he says there's no God like you, this isn't just, he's just not saying that because that's a, that's a good phrase to use at the beginning of a prayer. It is a self-consciously ex, uh, adopted phrase that connects the prayer to both the Davidic and the Mosaic covenants. 
Now, another place that we have this phrase, there is none like you, is in Psalm 89, verse 8. And Psalm 89 is the third key passage in the Old Testament on the Davidic covenant. The 89th Psalm is a meditation on uh, the Davidic covenant. And here we see in uh, 89, verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, emphasizing his that he is the leader of the armies. The Hebrew word for host is sabah, which is used even today for the uh, uh, IDF. And this is the army of Israel, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you. So the point of comparison here is has to do with God's might or his omnipotence. Uh, previously, remember, what he, what he was compared, who is great like you, who is majestic or immense in his holiness like you. So we have the holiness, which would also with God include righteousness and justice, his omnipotence, his sovereignty. All of these are points of comparison. And then an additional concept is added here, and that is the concept of God's faithfulness. This is the Hebrew word emuna, meaning faithfulness or steadfastness, that God sticks with what he says. Now, this word emuna is part of a word group that is based on a root word aman, amen, which is where we, when we conclude with a prayer, we say amen. And uh, we have the word for truth is emet. And it goes back to a concept of stability and that which is unshakable. And we have the reference in Chronicles to the foundation stone under the gates of the temple. And that is one of the places where we see this word group. And that's where we understand its core meaning, which has to do that which is immovable, that which is unshakable, that upon which everything can be built. So that word group splits in two directions. One direction is developed in the area of truth. That God is, is ultimate truth. Ultimate truth resides in him. is what he thinks. And the other uh, is the concept of faithfulness, steadfastness, dependability. And so these are the tr- truthfulness of God and the faithfulness of God are two, uh, two very close concepts in the Scripture. So we see this connection between God, his faithfulness, and his steadfastness. Now, when we start thinking about God in terms of his faithfulness, we need to connect this to some other terms and the use of this in the Mosaic Law. So we go to Deuteronomy 32.4 and Moses' final prayer, and he's talking about God. He is the rock. His work is perfect because he is pictured as this rock. He is that upon which we can uh, build everything. Everything can depend upon him. He is the uh, never-moving rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So when we think about Deuteronomy 32.4, there are a number of key words here that relate to the character of God. Now, what I'm showing here is that in, in Solomon's opening statement, he is 
pulling together these various uh, various statements related to the essence of God. And as we pray to God and as we go to God in uh, the faith rest drill claiming promises, these are to be built upon a clear understanding of the essence of God and the character of God. And this whole concept of God keeping covenant is this idea of his faithfulness. So the first word we ought to focus on here is that he is the rock, his work is perfect. That's a Hebrew word, tom, simply meaning that it is flawless. Uh, God, God is perfect and all that he creates is perfect. And the second statement, he says, for all his ways are justice. He is just in everything that he does. I would use the word just as opposed to justice, but this is the Hebrew word mishpat, which refers to something that is a judgment, a legal decision, and is a word that is used in legal cases. Now, here's where I'm bringing in this legal idea, this idea that God deals with man within the framework of legal covenants. God structures his relationships with us on the basis of law, on the basis of contracts. Now, a lot of people seem to think, well, that just sounds a little uh, mechanical or impersonal, that God is going to build his relationships with man on contracts. You know what the best answer to that is? Anybody have a marriage that's not built on a contract? Anybody have an ongoing love relationship with their spouse that's not built on a contract? See, that's what, what a marriage contract is, is that it is a contractual relationship that defines the boundaries of love. But it doesn't, it's not impersonal, but it establishes certain boundaries and certain realities that form the, the structure for the relationship. So you can't juxtapose it, but we live in such a ooey-gooey emotional society today that people say, oh, you know, we just have to love God, and they want to make it all sentimental. But what we see here is there's a connection between law and love, and that is that love, law provides boundaries, norms, and standards, and absolutes, and you can't have love if there's no norms, boundaries, and absolutes, and if there's not integrity. And that's what you have pictured here is that God's, all God's ways are just. They are according to a, uh, a standard. He is a God of faithfulness. And this is the uh, uh, Hebrew word emuna again, which is the word that we just saw back in uh, the Psalms. He is a God of faithfulness without injustice. He is righteous. This is the Hebrew word tzaddik, which has to do with a right relation to an ethical or legal standard. There's that legal bugaboo again. God has... the you know, Theologians talk, use the word condescended. I don't particularly like it, but that's the word that's used. But God has willingly limited himself in his dealings with his creatures for our benefit, that he enters into these well-defined contractual uh, uh, contract-based relationships so that we know what, what the conditions are and we know who he is and we know how we can depend upon him. So God is a God of faithfulness. He, he's never shaken. He is without injustice. He is righteous and 
uh, upright. This is the Hebrew word yasar, which means straight, just, or right. He always keeps to a straight path. He never varies. So it brings together both the idea of righteousness and faithfulness. I want you to notice how uh, how many different synonyms are used within uh, these passages for different attributes of God, not just one. And each word brings in a little different uh, nuance. Well, we see faithfulness emphasized back in Deuteronomy, the Mosaic Law. Another key passage back in Psalm 89, we're back to the Davidic Covenant Psalm, is one of my favorite verses related to all of this, and that is uh, Psalm 89:14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before your face. So the psalmist, as he is meditating upon God and his covenant with David, uh, grounds that in uh, God's, uh, God's character of righteousness and justice. Again, the word for righteousness here is Sadiq, indicating that uh, a right relation to an ethical or legal standard. God's character is the standard. He is always right. He defines the standard. And justice is mishpat again. See, these are the same two words we had back in um, back in Deuteronomy 32.4. So righteousness and justice become the foundation of your throne, and then loving kindness, chesed, and truth go before your face. And the word for truth is emet. So that... You, you have all these, these four key attributes linked together in this one verse. That's very important. How many times in these verses that I've gone to have we seen connections between two or three of these same words? Righteousness, justice, uh, his faithful, loyal love, and truth. Now, another passage that deals with the uniqueness of God is Psalm 86. This is a Psalm of David. It says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy. Mercy and truth. That's 86. I got ahead of myself. Psalm 86, 8. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. So here it's talking about his work of creation, what he does. He is unique. That Whenever you talk about God as creator, that's related to his sovereignty. And then that's connected in the same psalm to verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion, rechem, for compassion or mercy, gracious, chesed, uh, no, gracious is Hanan, long-suffering and abundant in loving kindness, chesed, and truth, emmet. So we see loving kindness and truth once again uh, linked together. And then um, I think I said that was the last passage. The last passage that we find the uniqueness of God is actually in Micah 7:18. Who is a God like you? Now here's the application. Start getting into the application. Who is like you, pardoning iniquity, 
Now, we haven't gotten out of verse 23 in Solomon's prayer, but what did I say he's praying? What is, what's he driving to? And verse 30, a prayer for forgiveness. So now Micah does, is doing the same kind of thing, going back to the uh, covenants, arguing for forgiveness. God, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Now, when we pray, when we claim promises, one of the key things that we see in the Psalms and in these prayers is this focus on the character of God. And we usually define the character of God in terms of ten basic attributes. That God is sovereign. That means he rules his creation. So sovereignty brings into bear ideas related to his being the creator, his being unique, uh, his being an authority over everything, his being the ruler over all that he creates. The idea that God is righteous, his character forms the standard for everything. The justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. That God is love, that God is eternal life. And then we have the three omni-brothers. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere equally to everything in his creation. And he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is able to do whatever he determines to do. He is veracity. He is absolute truth. And he is immutable. He is steadfast and faithful. Now, when I click this button to go to the next slide, you're going to see how many of these attributes were referenced in all these verses that we looked at tonight. Look at that. All but eternal life and omniscience were referenced. In, in his sovereignty, we saw that he's unique, he's incomparable. In his righteousness, he is holy, he is upright. In his justice, he is absolutely just. He his decisions are just and fair. He is love. This is in the word hesed, which pulls in both faithfulness and love. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is, in terms of omnipresence, he is immense. He is unbounded. He is beyond anything we can ever imagine. He is magnified. In terms of omnipotence, he works wonders and miracles. In terms of veracity, he is truth. In terms of immutability, he is always faithful. Now, I encourage you that when you face any situation in life where you're going to God in prayer, to sit down and write down the essence box and think through each of these attributes in light of how they are exhibited historically in the Old Testament or in the New Testament and how any of those situations relate to your situation. That will begin to lay a foundation for how you can uh, effectively pray about a particular, a particular situation in your life as you think in terms of comparing your situation to some situation uh, in the Bible as a precedent. One more chart I want to cover tonight, and that is related to God's integrity. Four things were connected for us in Psalm, uh, Psalm 89. 
and that is his righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, and love and truth go before it. Psalm 89, 14. It is on the basis of, the, of God's integrity that we can always count upon him to fulfill his promises. That is the foundation for the covenants. That's the foundation for his promises. And that's the basis for prayer and the faith rest drill. So now we have seen the opening here. And next time, we'll come back to the second half of the opening in 1 Kings 8.24, where Solomon prays, You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. This sets the framework for this prayer as a faith rest claim. He is going to God on the basis of what he's promised. So you promised this in the past. Now I want you to fulfill it in the life of the nation. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things that we might be strengthened in our appreciation for who you are for all of your attributes and how all of these are uh, uh, enacted in history, how we see you work in history, and that just as you have worked historically in the life of the nation Israel, individually in the great uh, heroes of the Old Testament and in the lives of the apostles of the New Testament, so you can act in our lives today. Father, we pray that we will be encouraged to I trust you to rely upon you to recognize that uh, you are the one who is greater than all of our circumstances and there's no problem or difficulty, no situation that we face that is too great for your magnificence and too great for your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.